0: The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by InvestTech, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello
1: and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about Yukio Mishima, whose 1962 novel Beautiful Star, which he, at least according to Wikipedia, considered his masterpiece, has been translated into English for the very first time, and I'm joined today by its translator Stephen Dodd. Steve, welcome. Now, why has it, if it's the masterpiece of a three-times... Nobel-nominated writer who stands at the very head of the Japanese canon. Why has it taken 60 years for a beautiful Start* to come into English?
0: Good question. And so I start with a confession, which is that when I was speaking to Penguin, I had remembered uh, in the back of my head that Mishima had said it was his masterpiece. But actually, he had said it was one of his best works and I'd misremembered it. So the the advertising bump will have to change in the future. But it is it is an outstanding work, I think it is. And I agree with Mishima that it's one of his best works. Sorry about that, to start with. But it, does
1: it pres- present particular difficulties in translation, or does it uh, present a difficulty in, in kind of speaking to a Western audience? I mean, is there a reason that it, it hasn't hasn't gone into existence you know a number of his works have been in print in english for for many years haven't they
0: well i think partly it's to do or not partly i think largely it's to do with the the actual theme of the book which is a which is a it's you could say it's a sci-fi story it's about flying saucers and there is i mean if i can give you a a little bit of background to uh, the the literary styles in, in japan Basically, in modern Japanese literature, there were two styles. One is called, in Japanese, jumbungaku, meaning pure literature. In other words, high literature. And then there's taishu which is popular fiction. He was, I mean, Mishima was so good at what he did. He was such a, I mean, you could say he was a genius. I mean, he was able to uh, work so uh, cleverly in, in so many different areas. And he was good at both popular literature and pure literature. Now, this novel, for various reasons, I can go into later if you want uh, and tell you why, but it it is pure literature. It highbrow literature. But the theme itself, particularly if you think in the 60s, people didn't take that sort of thing very seriously. I mean, people loved to read about science fiction, or people loved to read science fiction stories, but it wasn't considered that serious. And so definitely, I've I've read um, various Japanese critics who at the time said when they first heard that Mishima was going to write something about flying saucers, they they were very suspicious about it. But I think that suspicion, or rather, shall we say, that that, that doubt about whether it was worth worth taking seriously, that also was, was conveyed to people who might have translated it. You've got to remember, we're in the 60s. Mishima was considered a very important highbrow writer. And so, uh, you know translators didn't really want to touch it. Not that they weren't afraid of it, but I I guess they had other things to do and they thought this isn't so serious.
1: I mean, that sense of Mishima's place in the canon, I'd mean, i I, be very interested to get a sense from you of where Mishima, I mean, obviously he was nominated during his lifetime for the Nobel Prize, so he was acclaimed in his own lifetime. But where does he sort of stand in the canon of Japanese literature? Is he an unusual outlier or Pathbreaker, or was he simply a virtuoso practitioner of established
0: genres? How would you see him? Well, I think he's both. He was an incredibly gifted writer. I mean, not only did he write fiction, and as, as I say, both of those literary um, genres, you know, the, the popular and, and highbrow literature, but he wrote modern plays. He wrote modern kabuki plays. He, mo- he wrote modern no-drama, and these traditional genres, you know, these like, you know, in the case of Kabuki, say nineteenth-century style Kabuki plays, the whole right, the whole uh, linguistic equipment that they used to produce these was different. That you know, it was a classical style or semi-classical style that they used. So Mishima was able to do that. So he was really, I mean, and critics considered him, you know, extremely clever in what he was doing. But he also he was involved in. Uh, in film scenarios and and, you know he actually starred in films. He also I guess he was an exhibitionist. He loved he loved to show off. He often appeared in magazines, not just literary magazines, but like fashion mags. He would be dressed up in the latest fashions. He had I'm not gonna go on but one more thing to tell you here. If you see pictures of his his garden in his house that he had, had built in the middle of the garden, there's a big statue of uh, I think it's Apollo, and uh, and, were, and it's incredibly. Well, I was about to say tawdry, you know, it's so camp, uh, you know, his style is so camp, but he was very, very much, you know, a, a media figure, and I, you know, in a sense, I think he was one of the first post-war literary figures who was able to plug in to a, 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 an emerging post-war. You know, media world. I mean, in that sense, he, you know, he did uh, prefigure what you know what was to come. Yeah, there's, there is a sort
1: of funny bit in the book where I think when the, the trio from Sendai are out on the town, they drop yeah. in on a Yukio Mishima play, and he, and he kind of makes a joke about it. Exactly,
0: and they yeah, that's right. And they say, "Oh, oh we liked all the stuff except the Yukio Mishima bit." So yeah, that's right. <laughs> in a way. That, I mean. I don't think that shows humility. I just think that means that Michel just can't resist throwing a bit of himself, as it were, into you know, into into his stories.
1: Just a distinction you you talk about between sort of popular and high literature, which kind of corris- you know, corresponds to one that we've we've had here and argued over for many years as well. Is that one that that sort of goes right back? I mean, because I think think certainly we obviously look at. Japanese literature through a bit of a distorting lens and we could you know, don't see it for itself. one one thinks of it in as being more open, possibly because we see so much of the manga and anime, much more open to, to fantasy and science fictional themes. And you know, this this book obviously has a bit of feels like a kind of collision between Albert Camus and Kurt Vonnegut a little bit, you know, it's got that kind of wildness of Vonnegut.
0: Sure. You can, if you go back. Remember, before the modern, the modern period really begins in 1868. That's the beginning of what they call the Meiji period. So that's when the West is welcomed into the country, as it were. I mean, well, most people welcomed it in. So it's the start of the modern period. Before that, you had about 250 years of the what's called the Tokugawa period, and the Tokugawa period was, um, shall we say. No, I'm not not an expert on it, but, but I, it's like a feudal period. It's 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 quite a controlled society, and in that society, when it comes to popular culture in fiction, but also in, I mean, um, like you know kabuki and, and drama and so on, you have two styles. One is um, called ga, which means elegant, and one is zoku, which means say shall we say popular. Some people have pointed out that in a way zoku that is the the popular start in the tokugawa period was could be used as a kind of critique of the higher echelons of society and and that may be true that may absolutely be true but critics have pointed out that despite that there was no doubt in that society that ga was at the top and zoku was at the bottom and in a way you could only understand the irony or the you know the critical side from zoku if you understood the top side you know the 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 guy. and in a way then it was always the property of the elite if you see what i mean now when we come into the then we come into the really with this literature the mishima's coming out of it's really from about the 1920s that Popular fiction becomes huge because it's related to a huge explosion of education, of uh, publications, of mass media. I mean, the nineteen twenties in in Tokyo was like Berlin in the twenties. It's an amazing place, and there's a lot of examination of like fant- as you say, fantasy, sexuality, uh, all sorts of ex- uh, politics. I mean, in the nineteen twenties, the Communist Party was huge in Japan, and it was but it was crushed. In the, in the late twenties and into the into thirties, by uh, obviously the ultra nationalists who, who took power, so there's that kind of struggle that takes place, and then in ter- so in terms of literature, there's a, there's a group of people who are very very keen to have this the pure literature, and and that could be that could be really interesting, but it could also be extremely almost claustrophobic because people would talk about themselves, their own lives and they would only talk about their friends who were also writers. And so it was very much about people in the know. The the pure literature appealed to a, the pure literature gang, if you like, or you know, the, the group of people who would know that sort of thing, whereas popular literature obviously appealed to a, a, you know a greater number of people. And was Mishima, obviously he ended up in the gang, but was he in the
1: gang to start with? Well,
0: so uh, Mishima came of age as a writer towards the end of, World War in Two in the in you know the, the mid forties, and he was yes he was part of a, a, a like a literary coterie that that was actually very much very keen on on you know the emperor and, and you know, I mean he was of his age in that sense I mean inevitably he was he was keen on I suppose what you might call right wing political way of seeing things and and right wing cultural way of seeing things, but then when he comes into the defeat. A Japanese defeat in 1945, there's this very bleak moment that takes place. I mean, it's, it's hard, you know, we British have a particular relationship with our memory of World War Two, which is all about, you know, we won the war and all that sort of stuff. That has its own set of problems, which I won't go into now. But in terms of the Japanese, it was that we lost the war. You know, a, a sense of total shall we say not only military disaster but a kind of complete collapse of self belief and so on but at the same time it was a moment of hope and aspiration and the japanese word democracy came about or uh, arose in um, in the in, in after 1945 and for a lot of people it was a time of great hope for you know, women began you know had the vote there was land reform you know, the peasants were able to you know, own their own land and so on and this and, and of course with the control of Japan by the American occupation it meant that a certain kind of what free market capitalism became you know the established way of doing things there. and Mishima I think was able to so Mishima started from that elite side if you like, but then he was able to plug in to the popular side. One way you see that is in his practice as a writer, because he would always write at nighttime. He'd go out with friends, and then about half 10, he'd say, right, I've got to go home. So he'd go home, and for the first two hours or so of the night, he would write a pot boiler, a popular fiction, uh, fictional uh, novel, and then for the rest of the night, he'd go back to the serious stuff.
1: Wow. And so, was this in his canon was it a sort of departure to be introducing science fiction on themes? I mean you said you know that at the time the critics were all a bit like I'm not sure about Mishima doing flying saucers what was he what was he doing here what What impelled him
0: okay uh, well, well, I can't really say much about the history of science fiction because that's uh, I'm actually in Japan now and that, and I'm here for a year to do my research into that so, <laughs> so I can't really give you a definitive answer there but I can say that there was a lot of popular fiction detective stories I'm I I know I mean I know there was a lot of, of science fiction stuff around but I just I just can't give the real details of it the reason Mishima is Using this theme, well, I mean that's a very broad question, and you know everyone who reads this novel may have their own opinions about it. Well, one way of thinking about why he's why he's he's drawn to that theme is partly because, well, according to what I've read so far, so some critics have said that, that that Mishima told those critics that he believed in in flying saucers. In the sixties, there was this whole, I think it's to, it's very much to do with the Cold War. You know the idea of things coming through the sky, of things turning up, and anxiety about what's going to turn up. So, and this isn't just Japan, of course. This is all over the world, you know, in, in in the West yeah. as well. There's right. Eric von
1: Daniken, I think, published *Chariots of the Gods* in probably about 1962. I think exactly.
0: And so, so, so there's that anxiety that he's he's plugging into. The other thing, I mean, just as a as a technique, if you like, I think science fiction. Is a way of reflecting on ourselves from an ostensibly outside p- perspective. Well, that's very strong in this, isn't yes, it? Yes. So, yeah. So it's like you know, people get to, I mean, that is aliens, if they are aliens, they get together and they discuss what what it means to be human. So in that sense, it allows Mishima to to you know to 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 think about things in that way. I should
1: say there is a, there, uh, I mean, at least to the reader, or the, maybe the Western reader, you know, for quite a lot of this book, it feels like an open question. And I don't know, I'm interested in whether you think mission, mission intended to be open, whether these people are in the grip of a kind of colossal delusion, collective delusion, or whether they actually are. Because it, it begins with a very ordinary, respectable Japanese family who, as we learn rather casually early on in the book, have become convinced that they are all alien beings from different planets I mean men are from Mars and one of the women is from Venus, but you're not quite sure are they being sent up or are they actually right
0: I mean I think that's the heart of the novel really, and of course you know I'm, I'm, I know you, you know you write fiction as well, so the great thing about fiction is the truth that you find in fiction can rely upon ambiguity. That is, you know, uh, you know it, it's not like someone's going to say, in the novel, you, it describes going to this particular shop on this corner of the street, and someone looks it up and says, oh, actually, it's not on that street corner. Now, that may sound a ridiculous thing to say, but when it came to pure fiction, you know, people who wrote this pure fiction in the, from the 1920s, that's what people did. They would you know someone would say i got on a boat and went to some place an island in japan and someone someone would look it up and say oh there were no boats at that time so therefore it wasn't true that story but Mishima here is actually being extremely um, ambiguous and i think that's what gives it its depth and its humanity and its spirit i mean for instance that you know there's that um what for me, one of the loveliest bits of the story actually is where you know there's someone called Takemiya, the young man who is it seems from Venus, and he arranges to meet uh, Akiko, the uh, the daughter who's also from Venus, and um, and of course the parents are re- and and, and Takemiya invites her to Kanazawa where he lives and says uh, you know let's get together and and we'll we'll. We'll witness some flying saucers together. <laughs> well, for anyone who's read that novel will laugh a bit because it it's very ambiguous what actually happened. Yeah. But so, so when Takemi describes his first experience of knowing that he comes from Venus, of actually witnessing the landscape of Venus, he does it through no drama. And in other words, he goes back to a very classical trope, I suppose the word is, where um, Takemiya, it's his first time performing on the Nose Nos stage. He's got one of those nomas on, which has have tiny slits for eyes, so it's almost impossible to see where you're walking. And he describes it, I think, in very beautiful detail, how gradually he, he sees light, almost like light at the end of the tunnel. And as he walks over the stage, it becomes clear to him that he is witnessing the exquisite poetic, aesthetically overwhelming landscape of Venus and so that itself is ambiguous it's, you know, you've got a very traditional thing and then you've got the world of flying saucers and planets but the other thing that you, know, you probably wouldn't pick up unless you know a bit about Japanese culture is that in no drama the most common story in no drama is that you start with a monk who goes to a certain place and he hears that in this place there used to live hundreds of years ago, there used to live a particular person, say, who was, who was in love and who got who lost, who was discarded by their lover. So he goes to that place, he falls asleep, and then the ghost of that dead person comes to him, and then they talk. And so he kind of, it's almost like an exorcism, if you like. And then the, the monk wakes up and everything. You know, is it a dream? Is it reality, and so on. So you see what I'm saying. This this whole question: is it a dream? Is it a reality? In some ways, it, it's super modern, but at the same time, it's it's an evocation of of a, a very very fundamental question about reality that well, actually is related to Buddhism. I think you know, um, you know, what's reality? Is this real, or is this is this just a, a, a passing image?
1: And there's, I mean, the sort of heart of the second half of the book, well, I hope I'm right in saying you might disagree, is a sort of extended colloquy between Jurishi and these three guys from Sendai who are yes. also, it turns out, aliens. And the sort of setup of the book has it that... I mean, it's peculiar how close together they are because, I mean, it's a slight shades of Superman 2 in which you've got one set of aliens who are absolutely devoted, as Jewish is, to preserving human life and saving them from the shadow of the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. And another set of aliens who, taking a very similar view of humanity, think that the best way to, to put humanity out of its misery is to encourage them
0: to use the atomic bomb.
1: I mean, the a, a yeah. bomb hangs very heavily over the book, doesn't it? Uh,
0: OK, just before I try and respond to that, the... You're talking about. The, I haven't mentioned this, yet, but yes, you're right. This was written in 1962. This is the year of the uh, Cuban missile crisis. This is the year where people honestly thought we were about to disappear. It's, I mean, it's something that's just coming up now with Ukraine and so on. But it was much more serious then. I mean, it was an actual confrontation, and people were terrified. So the uh, the atomic, and particularly from a Japanese perspective. Now the Japanese, were, you know, is the nation that has experienced that, so it was it was visceral, so uh, so that was that was the the mood there. Now, for Mishima, he called this "Beautiful Star," the story, and oh, his novel, and um, uh, in some way, well, he uses this term throughout the book, and he's usually talking about the Earth. There's a translation problem here because. In Japanese, the word for star and planet kind of overlaps. It's, it's, it, they use the same word in a in in slightly different way. So that means when it comes to speak about planet Earth as a beautiful star, in English it sounds a bit strange. But in any case, beautiful star is, 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 is the word to use. But, I'm sorry, the point I'm trying to come to is that the beautiful star, <clears throat> I think, also relates to a you know nuclear war that and this is you know there's a perversity in Mishima that what is more beautiful than the flowering of every aspect of human power in the total annihilation through the brilliance of the light it sounds like i'm getting carried away but but i'm trying to you know
1: no it's 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 absolutely there uh, isn't it i think in your translation that yeah. almost the most impassioned part of that argument yeah. is that is that one in which, I can't remember his name, the baddie, if, if baddie is. I should know, I should know, anyway. Yeah. And, and he sort of says the flowering of the world's attachment to things yes. and and to the human attachment to time is that moment of annihilation. Exactly. Phil Mishima at least half had his foot in that camp.
0: Well, good point. Half and half. And the other thing to remember, although I'm always loath to go too much into detail of, of Mishima's, um, you know, him, what happened in his life, as you know, he ended up killing himself. And, and so for Mishima, there's always this question of what's the value of life? You know, uh, to what extent should we engage with life? Uh, what's the value of death? How does it come together? So I think in this book, I mean, this is actually eight years before he killed himself. But in this book, he is—he's talking quite, I would say, quite open. I don't mean openly, but um, he's open to the eye to the possibilities on both sides about whether human beings are right or wrong. I mean, as a novelist—and I'm not a novelist, so you can put me right, or correct me if I'm if I'm wrong—but I would I would imagine that that a good novelist has to be able to get into the head of people or ideas that you may vehemently disagree with, but you can't, you know, if you're a good novelist, you don't talk about things you think are repulsive and evil just to show they're repulsive and evil. You've got to really make it convincing. So I think in the case of uh, Mishima, he's the beautiful star, or or rather the discussion between these two groups, I think, you know, the the good aliens and the bad aliens, if you like, is... Is really to yeah to to seriously start thinking well uh, to what extent can we properly or or rightly exist in in, in the universe? Do, do we have a right to exist? And there's a sort of streak
1: of I mean vividly expressed misanthropy I think in in some
0: of these villains as well. That there is Mishima often says things which are shocking. And they're designed to shock. I mean, for instance, you know, I can't even remember. I think I, I read a short story about his recently. And it was about the main character. Oh, oh, no, I know what it was. It was um, actually um, Temple of the Golden Pavilion, uh, King Kakuji, And it's about a monk, a, a young, he's an acolyte. It's based on a true story. In the, in the 50s, an acolyte in a temple. Here in Kyoto, where I am at the moment, he burnt down the golden temple, which was about 400 years old, beautiful gold-covered temple. He burnt it down. So Mishma used that story and kind of made up his own story about why he did it. Anyway, that's a, a long story, which I won't go into. But this monk has uh, his mother comes to see him. And uh, and she's very upset. Before he burns the temple down, but, she, but he's become a kind of delinquent. And the mother starts, uh, she bursts into tears in front of him. Now, you'd expect the son to think something like, well, oh, my poor mother, you know, I, I feel terrible about it. But he says something like, when I saw, saw her sniveling in front of me, it made me realise that, you know, what a worthless piece of whatever she is. That sort of thing. Now, he uses that kind of language all the time. Well, I'm not exactly sure why, but... Um, but is that in violation
1: of particular a particular cultural Japanese... I mean, it's in violation of Western decorums as well, but I mean, are there particular taboos he's tilting at that are?
0: Yes, uh, but then I mean, to actually to go back to the highbrow style that, that emerged in the early twentieth century, a lot of those writers they they would often portray themselves in a very bad light. They'd be alcoholics, or they they the male writers would be wife beaters, or they they describe their children as as you know grotesque little animals or things like that. Really quite shocking things and the reason they did that was to demonstrate that they were being truthful you know if, if you show if you were willing to expose yourself as a really awful person what better way than uh, 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 to to demonstrate that you, you you're authentic so there's something of that going on there with Mishima but I think with Mishima also it's a way of it's a way of protecting himself um, I mean, it, it relates to how he grew up, his life. So um, so growing up, you know, obviously he had a mother and father, and but the grandparents also lived in the same house. It was a three-generational family, a traditional Japanese three-generational family at that time. And the grandmother was extremely controlling. And within a month or so of the child being born, the grandmother had basically commandeered the child and she reared Mishima in her own home she didn't let the mother look after her look after him and and Mishima was not allowed to go out and play he wasn't allowed to play boys games because uh, because he might get hurt because uh, the, the grandmother thought he was frail so he lived a very protected life and then uh, and also he, he you know he was homosexual so i'm i'm not normally i would say gay but in this case, he hasn't, you know, gay for me is, I'm gay. So I see it as a political identity, which is about, you know, feeling okay about yourself. Mishima kind of felt okay about himself, but he drew from another tradition, the, the samurai tradition, with almost like a sort of Greek homoeroticism he, he drew from. But so he grew up and this protectiveness allowed uh, meant that he had to control his feelings a lot. Uh, and but then violent events broke through in his life. So at one point, his father took him to uh, held him uh, at, at a, as a train went by and held him up against the, uh, the the railings. And the baby didn't respond at all. Didn't cry. Didn't respond at all. So, but already, I don't know how the child how old he was, maybe two years or something. But uh, but he didn't respond. He'd learned to control himself. And then his first sexual arousal, if you like, or one his his first understanding of eroticism was the night soil man that is the man who would who would collect all the human excrement you know every night, and he wore tight pants and this this young boy who was about four years old, noticed that and was drawn to it and so this was someone who had a particular smell about him, a particular Physicality, uh, masculinity about him that intruded into Granny's protective world. So I think that kind of experience meant that what for him was exciting was often about like breaking through things, you know, smashing through barriers.
1: But I, I mean, I, you you say, and you know, I absolutely respect that. You know, we shouldn't go too deeply into his life. But, I mean, you know, one of the, if not the main thing that many people in the West know about Mishima was he attempted to organise a military coup to restore a very traditional right-wing conservative idea of Japanese identity and failed and killed himself in very conservative traditional Japanese means of seppuku. How much does that sort of square with the the Mishima who was interested in popular literature, who was interested in sort of violating certain taboos. I mean, did he sort of essentially put literature to one side and, you know, become politically radicalised? What's the trajectory there? How can you sketch it briefly for...
0: Well, I have to say that from my own perspective, because I've I've done this translation, I did another one two or three years ago called Life for Sale, also a Mishima uh, uh, novel, so, and, and I'm here for this year doing research into Mishima. So I'm, I'm trying to you know, write academic stuff about Mishima. Part of me really resents Mishima. He's so, con- I've told, you know, he's about control. And, you know, I mean, what a fucker, you know. He controlled his life to the extent that he wrote his final chapter, if you like. His na- he's, a, he's a narrator. He's a, you know, he's a literary, well, he, he's more than, he's, he's, a, he's a narrator of his own life. And he put this final ending to his life. And of course, we can't ignore it. And that's why I try to ignore it. But we, of course, we can't. Uh, so and you, you know, of course, you're exactly right. We should you know we have to take that into account. So as far as the politics side goes, I know that in my own work, I'm going to have to address his politics in one of my chapters. I haven't got there yet because it's. Uh, there's this whole question about to what extent he was a serious right-wing extremist um, uh, because he always, you know, in his novels, you do see the other side of things. You know, is it right for th- people to live or, or should people kill themselves, that sort of thing. Uh, he, he's always aware of the other side of things.
1: And there's a right-wing politician in this novel who is, you know, sent up.
0: exactly. <laughs> exactly so the and, and in a way that i mean i think that's beautifully portrayed yeah they the character is very he's very charismatic he he's um he's very smart and actually in the japanese sense of smarto <laughs> which means sort of like a you know slightly trim muscular body and you can see his body through his through his uh, black sweater and he's, he's he's got a great way with words and and the language he uses is actually, when I was translating it, it's, uh, I began to think this is rubbish what he's talking about. But in a way, you've got to seriously translate the the mesmerising language that he's using. Oh, so you were just saying saying how you read Mishima's politics? Oh, okay, yes, yeah. so. Although I say I'm not sure to what extent we should take him seriously, well, he was serious and he did do something serious. He did act in the world, not in a way that, you know, I would approve of, But he was a, he was very engaged generally in the political currents of the time. And you've got to remember that, uh, well, I don't know how, how much people know about Japanese politics, but... Particularly in 1960, and then in the late 60s, there was a very, very powerful student movement. Very, lots, lots of you know, people on the left, very uh, antagonistic, particularly to the what was called the ampo that is the uh, the American occupation. And in this, in 1960 and 1970, the treaty was re-signed by the Japanese government, and it caused huge riots. And there was a lot of violence on both sides, both you know, from the government side and from the, from the demonstrator side. Now, Mishima, in I think it was in 1969, went to Tokyo University, which is the most elite university in Japan. And actually, quite bravely, uh, went. it was being occupied by the, by the leftist students and he went to meet them. And he said to them, I respect you. In fact, I love your energy. I love your, well, he didn't say your sort of homoerotic charge, but I think that's what he was talking about. He loved it. But he said, all I ask of you, I will join you, provided you agree to stand up and say, we are on the side of the emperor. And of course, from the leftist perspective, that was rubbish. So they they said no. Um, So he was very engaged in politics. but But I don't see him as one of those well, from my own perspective, no, rather ridiculous, the fanatical right-wingers of uh, the, the other fanatical right-wingers that, that, that were around at the time. And yet, so I haven't really worked it out for myself yet. A bit, a bit
1: fanatical. How did that, you know, his, his political engagement at his end, you know, he's obviously a very public figure. How has that affected his reputation in Japan now?
0: How is he thought of? Hugely. Gen- like most places, most a- a- academics, not all, but a-, a lot of academics, particularly in Japan, have been on the left. And and they were astonished by what uh, Mishima had done. Uh, well, actually, it wasn't just the academics, but it was that, you know, the whole population was absolutely astonished that he actually committed uh, seppuku. Uh, because already for uh, over a hundred years or you know, that was an anachronism. I mean, no one did that. That was all, very rarely. There are exceptions, but very rarely. So um, people were utterly shocked. As far as his critical reputation goes, it, I mean, it really uh, damaged him. And a lot of uh, literary critics, you know, uh, or you know, literary uh, scholars wouldn't touch him with a barge pole. And I understand why. I mean, I think you know, it was just too shocking. That it was just too much to deal with. And in a sense, I, as a foreigner, who, you know, spend a lot long, long time you know, looking at Japan, Japanese literature, it may be, hopefully, that as a foreigner, I can kind of step in and, you uh, know, I'm not the first person, but, you know, one of the people who can step in and, and try and revisit him and reconsider him. But having said that, in the last uh, decade or so, Mishima is definitely... Uh, there's more interest in him. It's only uh, where are we? Well, like two years ago, it was the fiftieth anniversary of his suicide, and there was a, a, a kind of a mini a Mishima boom in in Japan. Uh, you know, I, in fact, I was here two or three years ago, and I went to uh, one of the big bookshops in Tokyo, and I went up to the literature department, and there was a, a desk with all, you know, a table with with all the Mishima books laid out. So there was obviously that he was a kind of Uh, something to 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 focus on in that time
1: well Yuko Mishima's beautiful star translated by Stephen Dodd is out now from Penguin Classics Stephen thank you very much indeed for your time